Today I'm going to talk to you about um, why well, I titled the talk this morning, This Beautiful Church. This Beautiful Church. And I just want you to know that when I, when I titled it, I had two things going through my mind. Um, first, I was thinking about the church as the entity. That is what Jesus established when he said to um, Peter that uh, upon this rock I will build my church. And it's a beautiful design, especially as you go through the scriptures and you see all the functions of the church and how they're supposed to be a witness and the one and others of the church and the giftings of the church. It's a beautiful design. And so I can say this beautiful church. But there's a second thing that goes through my mind when I think about that title, and that is this beautiful church. First Baptist here in Pekin is a beautiful church. Now, I, I, I want to share a, a, a quick story, something that I, I think was profound that happened to me a few months ago um, as I was sitting here thinking about this church. When I came here, I guess it was, it was uh, five years ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, was the first time I had come to this church just to visit and um, I think it was, it was February 9th of 2012 that I officially came here. And so it's not quite been five years. It's almost five years. But when I came here, I loved you guys. But it was a very different kind of love um, than I have for you guys now. Um, it's just a really kind of a generic thing. You know, we have the common, the common bond of Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when I go on the missions trips and I, I go to uh, other countries and you see um, people in South Africa and you're like, man, I really feel love for these guys because we have, we have a common bond of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. That's, that's not how I love you guys anymore. Um, I was sitting on the stool up there a couple months ago. And um, I think there's an announcement being made, and I had this sentence go through my head. Now, I don't want to be too weird about it, but um, have you ever had a strong thought come through your head, and you're pretty sure that didn't come from your head? <laughs> it was like, someone's putting that there? And it was a sentence that went through my head, and then it went back over my head. I don't know. Somehow it got over to my right ear. <laughs> I don't know. It went through my head. And it went, and an exact same sentence went through my head twice, but each time it meant something totally different. And so let me just share that with you, because I want you to know how I feel about you. Um, the first time the sentence went through my head, it said, you love these people. But that time it was a proclamation. It was kind of a verification that, that Chris, when you came here, you love these people because you had a common bond in Jesus Christ. But you've been here almost five years now. You've been in someone's, some of their homes. You've hugged some of them. You've held hands and prayed with some of them. You've helped people through things. You've laughed with some of them. You've ministered with some of them. Um, Chris, you love these people, but it's not the same kind of love it was when you got here. It's a personal thing. Um, and I felt that way, but it was kind of neat to have that kind of verify that. And then the second time it goes through my head again. It says, Chris, you love these people. But this time it wasn't a proclamation, it was a command. And, um, and so I think that's what I want to do. <laughs> I want to love you guys. And I don't know the best way to do that, but I want to try. But so when I say this beautiful church, I'm talking about the structure of the church but I'm also talking about First Baptist, this beautiful church. I'm going to be speaking from Jesus' most famous sermon. You guys know what that's called, right? 
the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but I'm only going to be taking three verses from the sermon, and I'm going to be looking at those. So follow with me as I read from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus is speaking to the believers at the time. The church hasn't been established, but he's starting to set the foundation of what that church is going to be. And you read through, like he just finished going through the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit and all those types of things. And then he goes and he looks at the people. I wish you could get facial expressions and tone, but you can't with ink and paper. You just got to get the words. But he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. Kind of, kind of listen to this as you hear it. Listen to it as if Jesus is saying it to you here at First Baptist. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loot has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray. Jesus, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of your spirit. I thank you for the fellowship of believers. Lord, I just pray that you be with me and help me to say good and true and helpful things. Be with the ears and the hearts of the people that they might not hear when I say trivial and unhelpful things. In the end, I just pray that the proclamation of your word would be for the building up of the church and for the glorifying of your name here in our community and to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start, we're going to look at these two elements. When he says that you are salt and you are light, we're going to look at those and we're trying to figure out what does that mean? What is he calling us to be? Actually, he's not calling us to do anything. He's declaring something that you are. But what does it mean to be salt? So I went through a bunch of commentators and, um, and there's a lot of things that they had written about salt and saltiness. And you've probably heard a lot of them, like, back in the day, salt was a preservative, and it helped food last longer, and they didn't have refrigerators and things like that. There's an element of that that might be true. Um, Back in the day, you know, it was used for um, purifying things. There's even a story in the Old Testament where salt is used to perform a miracle to purify dirty water. Um, You know, back back in that day, it was used as a healing agent, kind of like medicines for people who had ailments and things like that. But there's one phrase that kept going through my head as I was trying to figure this out. Because if you read the text, Jesus doesn't tell us what was going through his mind when he said, you are the salt of the earth. Which one is it? Is it all of them? Is it preservative? Is it purity? Is it healing? What are you talking about there? You know, what are we supposed to be reflecting as we be the church that you call us to be? And there's one, there's one phrase that one of my teachers just got locked into our minds. Um, and I actually got it locked into my students' minds a couple months ago, or I mean a couple years ago. I was visiting with a student I hadn't seen in like 10 years, and um, he saw me and he said, uh, Mr. Gerd, context is king. I was like, okay, well, if, you, if there's nothing else but that, I guess that's a good thing. So let me explain what that means a little bit. I can't unfold, I can't unfold all of it. That would be, it's, a, it's a very involved phrase as far as how we would apply it. But context as king means that the context 
of any statement or proclamation or Bible verse rules our interpretation of that Bible verse or statement. Does that make sense? If I want to understand what something says in the Bible, the thing i got to most understand is what does it say around that? What is the writer talking about? Context has to rule it. Because a lot of times what we do is we'll grab a verse out of the Bible and we'll start doing word studies in that verse and disregarding what's going on in that paragraph and in that story and in that, you know. So why it is true that salt is used as a preservative or a purifying agent or a healing agent or even as a flavoring for food, why all those things are true, none of those things are spoken of in this passage. We could ask Jesus when we get there. But there is an aspect of salt that he talks about that might help us to know what he's talking about here. And that has to do with the usefulness or the purpose of the salt. He didn't talk about specifically what the purpose that it is, but he does say when it loses that purpose, when it stops functioning for that purpose, we just throw it out on the ground to be trampled on. Have you ever misused something? I saw some faces here. So we're going to have some, we're gonna have some sharing time here. Okay? Have you ever seen a tool misused? Someone tell me a misuse of a tool that you've... Okay, here we go. <laughs> Too many, huh? Use a what? A speed handle? Handle? So is my knowledge of tools, but very good. Oh, okay, okay, there we go. I've used a, I've used a flashlight as a hammer. I've done that before. Okay. Oh, I've done that before. I actually have one of my screwdrivers is kind of... So now I, it's, it's really hard to use now because I've... Okay, Connie. A butter knife is a... Do you have any butter knives that kind of are twisted? Yeah, I have one like that. Oh my goodness, I wasn't expecting all this participation. <laughs> you didn't use like that garden hose. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I'm laughing with you. With you, not at you. Whew. I'm trying to love you guys. Um, <laughs> I, re- I remember when I was painting in the summers when I was teaching, and, and we took a, a putty knife, and, um, and all the tools were down in the basement of the school building, and I was just like, there's just no way I'm going down there. So I'd use the putty knife as a screwdriver, but sure enough, it gets all chewed up, and then the screw head gets all chewed up, and then you're finally like, this didn't work, and this is too tight, I'm going to have to go to get the screwdriver, but now that won't work because you've chewed up the screw head. So there's a lot of ways we can misuse things. But I think that when he's talking about salt, he's talking about the usefulness of it. Let me give you some more examples of misuses of things. Here's one. That's not a proper jack for a truck. Actually, if you look at the guy, the way he's sitting there, it's just, I mean, if any of them two-by-fours gives, that's going to be a bad day, a really bad day. Um, How about the next one? I've actually done this one before. And I used to drive a, um, a JCB like that at, my, at one of my old jobs, and I know that those buckets, they don't sit very, they, they bounce a bit. 
So I'm sure that he's, yeah. I worked for a plumbing company when I got out of high school, and I remember we, had, um, we were building the sprinkler lines for a, um, an auditorium, and so we had to start at the top of the ceilings on these scaffoldings, and then we kind of lower it, lower it, lower it, and then the foreman realized, oh, we made a mistake. But by then, we had run all these pipes, but the mistake was up there. So we had to climb up the scaffolding, and then we had to put a ladder on the edge of the scaffolding and drop it on the wall, and the head plumber, luckily, I, my job was to make sure the ladder didn't slide. I didn't have to go on the ladder, but I stood on the ladder, and he went up there with the torch and had to do some work on that thing. But, um, and when he came down, I heard some of the nastiest language. He, he, he laid into the foreman and said, never, ever, ever ask me to do that again. Next one. See, I know we are into missions here, and so some of you will go to other countries, and other countries have different outlets. And you're like, oh, I forgot my converters. But now you can see that's no big deal, because if you have a couple nail um, clippers, it's problem solved, right? I would say that's a misuse of nail clippers. <laughs> oh, you've done that. I don't see that one ending up very good. All right, last one. I I like that one. So they're they're cooking on a grill in the middle of the pool, but they have to get... It's an electric grill, so they... See the outlet there? It's kind of floating there. That's, That's... I'm pretty sure that if you flipped over the... The surge protector, there's probably a warning that says don't float this on your sandals in the pool. (laughs) Or they'll probably have a lawsuit and they'll say, hey, guess what? You never told me I couldn't float this on my sandals in the pool. So so there's a lot of ways that tools can be misused. But let let me unfold this a little bit because this has really helped me as I've wrestled with what does it mean to be a useful tool in the hands of God. When I was, um, I was given the task of teaching on the holiness of God once, and so first, first I want to do is find out where the Bible talks about the holiness of God. If you ever get a concordance out and you look for the word holy, there is an unbelievable cluster in the book of Leviticus. I mean, you, you might, I, I haven't looked in a while, I just remember that, but you might be able to get half of the uses of the word holy in the entire Bible just right there in the book of, the book of Leviticus. So what I did was I read Leviticus, right? Anybody read Leviticus? It's good, good, good um, sedative-type reading. But it's like every other sentence is, for I, the Lord, I am the Lord who makes you holy, you know, and hey guys, you need to do this, for I am the Lord who makes you holy, and we're going to build one of these, and I'm going to consecrate it, I'm going to make it holy, for I am the Lord who makes you holy, and, you're, and it's just over and over and over and over. But when you think about holiness, what's one of the, what's one of the first things that comes to your mind? You don't have to answer out loud, but just think about that. First thing that comes to my mind, at least the way the word is used, is purity. Lacking of imperfections. Cleanliness, maybe. But as I was reading through Leviticus, I was thinking, that's not really sitting right with me. I mean, there's a sense in which holy is talking about purity. Um, but I don't think that's the main way holiness is being used. Let's, let's, let me unfold this a little bit. Holiness 
does have to do with the idea of being set apart. You've probably heard that before. To be holy is to be set apart. And when we talk about it as parents and as teachers and theologians and things like that, usually we talk about being set apart from. But honestly, as you go through the Bible, it does talk about being set apart from, but it puts more of an emphasis on being set apart for. And we really drop the ball on that as Christians when we focus more on being set apart from than being set apart for. When you read through Leviticus, you'll hear that in in addition to God, people, places, objects, days, meetings, and events, all those things are, are, are described as holy. This is a holy day, or this person is consecrated for a purpose. He's, he is holy for our Lord. Or this table is holy, or this lampstand is holy, or this perfect sacrifice is holy. He, he puts all those labels on all those things. Is there a kind of static purity that applies in the same way to all of these items? I would say no. I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Think about that for a second. God is holy, and because he's holy, he's calling us to be holy. Is he calling us to be God? That would be blasphemy. So there's a way that God is holy that we are not. We're both set apart in purity, we're set apart for purpose, but those things might be different from one person to the other. Or in Leviticus 27, every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. Does that mean every devoted thing is the same? Okay, let me, let me unfold this illustration. I have an altar here, right? And on this altar, what we'll do is, um, is, is God calls us to, we'll burn some stuff, you know, incense or something like that, but we'll, um, we'll, we'll um, sacrifice and slaughter animals. It's, it had to be an absolutely disgusting table, you know, full of blood and things like that. Over here we have candle stands, and they're used to keep the light nonstop in the, in the temple. And then you have the animal that's set aside, set apart for uh, 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 um, a sacrifice. So performing a sacrifice is holy. The lampstands are holy. So I take the animal and I sacrifice the animal on the lampstand. Would that not be a holy thing to do? But didn't God call the lampstands holy? Didn't God say that sacrificing the animal will be holy? Yeah? So why isn't it holy for me to sacrifice the animal on the lampstands? It's a different purpose. And we use it, if we do it like that, it's, it's like, um, it's like the, using the screwdriver as a, as a pry bar. It's, that's not what it was meant for. You know, you're misusing the screwdriver. It's going to do damage to the screwdriver, do damage to what you're trying to accomplish. It's, that's not what it was designed for. You take things outside of their purpose, and, and, and bad things can happen. So is it, the condition of these objects... Is what makes them holy, or is it the use of the things that makes them holy? If we were to do holy things with objects that were designed for a purpose, neither the objects nor the actions would be holy anymore. 
can we, can, now, now we don't do sacrifices, we're not in a temple system, so can we take this concept and can we bring it to our experiences as the church? Romans 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have, all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If your gift is prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I'm moving on to 1 Corinthians 12, similar passage, but I want you to hear it again. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's your gift? I'm not expecting that to, to answer out loud, but what's your gift? You part of the church? Put your faith in Jesus? What did Paul say there? To each. You think that it would be a good idea to figure out what God's called you to? I think so. Here's where it hit home with me. As I thought about the items of the temple being used for different, for different purposes or misused for different purposes, it made me wonder, could that be done with people in the church? There's something that the Reformation brought about. One of the phrases that, that was used quite a bit called the priesthood of believers. Now, now what that phrase means, basically, it was, it was correcting a common misconception in the church that there were higher value and lower value roles within the church. The priests, you know, and the, the pope, you know, and the ministers, and then you have the peasants and the servants. And so these are dignified roles in the church. These are undignified roles of the church. And William Tyndale in, in particular would say that's not true. Each member within his personal gifting is equally dignified and full of virtue for the purpose of Christ. When they're functioning within their purpose... It's not pastor and deacon and ministry leaders and these are worthy, you know. No, it's everybody is equally valuable when acting in the giftedness that you've been given by God. So, suppose, let me just illustrate for a second. Suppose God says, Chris, um, I want you to be a, a Christian business owner in the United States. I want, you to, I want you to get a business, I want you to run that business, I want you to hire people, and I want you to run the business the way I would run the business. Be a Jesus business owner. And I say, God, do you not understand that there are people in the world that do not have the gospel yet? I'm not going to be a business owner. 
I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to go to some of the hardest reached places in the world. I'm going to take the gospel, sacrifice and suffer for the sake of the gospel, and I'm going to be a missionary, find someone else to be a business owner. Am I being holy? Isn't that that incredible? So it's possible to do holy things in unholy ways. It's possible to do, do good things in ways that are disobedient to God. The missionary is not more dignified than the business owner. The question isn't whether or not this service is better or worse. The question is, what has God called you to? What is your purpose? And when you fulfill that, it's a beautiful church. So, the salt has more to do with purpose than the specifics. One more thing to illustrate the salt before I move into the light. In the church in Laodicea, you have a bad water issue there. In Revelation 3, we, we hear Jesus and John's recording Jesus talking to all these churches, to the church in uh, Smyrna or the church in um, Ephesus where he says you've, you've left your first love and repent and, and go back to the, the first love that you had. Um, but in Laodicea, there's something interesting happening there. Let me read the passage and then let me, let me unfold it. It's very similar to the Matthew 5 passage. And Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I just assumed what I thought hot and cold meant for the longest time until I was asked to teach on this and I really started digging into it and trying to figure out. Because what really puzzled me is in my mind I thought, I want to be a hot Christian, right? I want to be an on fire Christian. I don't want to be a cold Christian who's apathetic and disinterested, right? And so, but, but what puzzled me was that what God called Luke, what God called bad was not cold, right? In fact, he even commends him and says, I wish that you were hot or cold. So I was like, my thinking must be wrong. It's lukewarm that he doesn't like. Well, why is that? It's an interesting thing in Laodicea, okay? Laodicea didn't have any water sources. It really didn't have adequate water sources. So if they were going to get water into the city, they had to pipe the water in from neighboring cities. Like there was a city off this way where they had these hot springs. And they would pipe these hot, this water from the hot springs into Laodicea through these aqueduct systems. And the hot springs were very useful because the, the warm water would be therapeutic for, um, for different ailments and people would get in that water. The only thing is by the time that water got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. There was, uh, I think it was Col- uh, Colossae that had, the, that had the spring water and it would come out of the ground and it would be cold and refreshing, helpful, invigorating to, to give you energy for work. And so they pipe in some of that water from Colossae, but by the time that water got to Laodicea, it was no longer cold. It was lukewarm. And, and there, was a, there was an incredible, incredibly high mineral content in the water. We're in the Midwest, so there's some wells that are like that. You know, have you ever done that where you have an incredibly high mineral content and you're like, <laughs> what is that? You know? And so by the time the water gets to Laodicea, it's, it's not... It's not invigorating and refreshing. It's not warm and therapeutic. It's lukewarm. It stinks. It tastes awful. It's disgusting. 
it's lost its usefulness. And Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Similarly, in Matthew 5.13, Jesus says that when useless, the salt is tossed away. You use whatever imagery you want. They're all in the Bible. Well, there's one that's not in the Bible, but in history. The lukewarm water is spit out. The useless salt is thrown out to be trampled on. In the Old Testament, they had a different kind of salt than we had. And so if the salt could actually lose its salty properties, and so if it lost its salty properties, they really couldn't use it for food or anything. So what they would do is they would mix it with manure, and it would help in the decomposition process. So you decide what kind of, what kind of person you want to be. Do you want to be the one spit out, thrown out to be trampled on, or mixed with manure? I don't think any of them are really helpful. I noticed that, um, that not a lot of you are taking notes, and so I brought some, um, some paper here for some of you guys to take some notes on. So, um, man, I don't have enough for everyone. Actually, I created some paper yesterday. I created, what would happen if, if you started taking notes on this paper? It wouldn't really work. It would just tear holes in it. You know, at best, your, your, your writing would look awful. This paper, and, and just, just hang on here. I'm about to invent a word. Okay? This paper has lost its paperiness. So what would you do if I gave you this paper and said, here, you need something to take notes on? You'd throw it out. It's, 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 it's getting colder, so you might say, hey, I might be able to use it as kindling to start a fire. But the intended purpose of this paper is, is, is no, longer, no longer helpful at all. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about usefulness when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You have an incredible purpose for me. Sim- Oops, sorry. So that's salt. Let me go. Light won't take us long. Jesus says that you are the light of the world. But over and over and over and over and over in Scripture, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. For instance, in John 8, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if Jesus is the light of the world, how do his disciples become the light of the world? I say it's by being witnesses to the light. He calls us to be witnesses to the light. Now, I was doing some reading on this. There's five, six, seven, eight. There's a bunch of ways in which we witness to the light. I'm just going to touch on one or two. First of all, an observation. When we speak of and represent the light, one thing that we have to realize is this light cannot always be seen by everybody. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 13, he tells them that in seeing, they do not see. So there is a light that exists, and they can see, and yet still not see. Or Paul says in Ephesians 1, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So what is it that we're witnessing to? We're witnessing of a light that's hard to see, but what is it that we're witnessing about? We're witnessing about primarily Jesus, but even more specifically, we're witnessing of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 
Paul writes, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, here it is, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is what it means to be the light of the world. We're witnessing to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is done both through our deeds and our words. Both, not one or the other. So we're witnessing. When we're witnessing, we are revealing a truth that is there, but some cannot see. Our truth is not a hidden truth. I was reading an African Bible commentary, and he says, Any disciple who is a secret disciple is not a disciple. A disciple in secret is not a disciple. We bring to light the truth. So that means that there's something there. It's a reality. It's not a concept that we conjure up for our minds. There's something there that can be seen, but we have to draw it to attention. Let me use this picture as an example. What do you see? Someone, just tell me what you see. What's that? That's too fast. Took, the, took first service a long time to see the second thing. And then last night, I was showing it to my wife, and um, I was actually tracing the dude, and she still couldn't see it. Can you see it yet? Huh? Okay. So a, it's a monkey hanging from a branch, but there's another thing there that a lot of people can't see. Unless someone brings it to their attention, like Josh just used the telestrator function up there to do that. Oh, technology. So there's a tiger or a panther or something like that. So as Christians, when we're bringing light to the world, we're not bringing light to something that doesn't exist. We're bringing light to something that does exist, but it's hard for them to see. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. When we hide this light... And I know when I say that, you're, a lot of people are like, well, we don't hide this light. I don't hide this light. This light isn't hidden. Well, we do hide this light. We hide this light by failing to declare it. When we hide this light, we appear to have a ridiculous hope, and we lock the gospel away from sinners in need of it. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. It's through you that Jesus intends to show himself to the world. It's through Jesus that the world will make sense to those who can see it. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. We want to show people Jesus so they could see Jesus. And when they see Jesus and they turn and look at the world, the world will make more sense. Because by Jesus, it makes more sense. I love that quote. So, FBC, where are we? Are we salt and light? People are tentative to answer. Yes, you guys are salt. You can experience the flavor of the gospel here. Let me give some specifics. You probably hear these things listed all in over and over, but I don't want you, I don't want it to get old. Like kids hope. You realize how amazing that is? The salt of the earth 
the flavor of the gospel that happens in a ministry like that, and the food pantry, our care and prayer ministries, generally the way we love one another and many in our Pekin community. We are the salt of the earth. You're doing a good job. Are we light? People can see the truth of the gospel. I think of our women's Bible studies, our men's Bible studies, our community groups. I think we are. I think we are salt and light. Does it mean that we don't have things to work on? Well, there are. But we're not done. We're not stuck. For instance, discipleship. That's something we could grow in, I think. Discipleship is not an option for any Christian. You must all be in discipleship relationships. I know that sounds like I'm saying that in a strong way, but I I believe that most, and I could think in my mind a few exceptions, but most of you should be both getting discipled and be discipling. That's something we could grow in. Authentic, intimate koinonia fellowship with the local body of Christ. That's another thing I think we could grow in. We cannot and we will not develop the kind of love for one another that the Bible calls us to by sitting in a church service once a week. We must be more intentional in getting into one another's lives, not attending services together, but into one another's lives, into one another's homes, into one another's daily activities. FBC is a beautiful place with greater potential than we are already seeing and experiencing and proclaiming. I say let us continue being salt and light in Pekin, in our nation and our world, while we grow in being salt and light in some of the ways that we've neglected. Let us be the community that David spoke of in Psalm 34. And as we are salt and light... Let us say to those around us, taste and see. You hear that? Salt and light. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Let's be that. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for how you've enabled us. And we thank you for the task that you called us to. Let us not lose sight of these things. And until the day you return, help us to press on. We pray this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.